Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Titus, please. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. We are not going to be completing chapter 2. There are really three sections of chapter 2 that I will be preaching through. I thought about doing it in two, but I decided in the end the information is just too valuable to pass through quickly. Today's message is titled, A Charge to Christian Men. You'll see in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul is writing to Timothy and essentially charging Titus, I'm sorry, writing to Titus, excuse me, charging Titus to give a charge to the men in the church. The charge continues in verses 6 through 8 for the men. In verses 1 and 2, it's the aged men. In verses 6 through 8, it's the young men. But in between those two passages, we find verses 3 through 5, and a charge is given to the aged and young women. And so next time I'll be preaching, which will not be this next Sunday, I'll be on a marriage retreat with many of you in this congregation. So when I return the Sunday after, we'll continue in Titus chapter 2 with the charge to Christian women. That doesn't mean that the women have nothing to learn today, and it doesn't mean the men will have nothing to learn with the charge to the women. Scripture is the living word, and it's amazing how the Holy Spirit takes a passage of Scripture that is really determined and, and designed to be for someone else can still be helpful to you. It's great how God's Word does that. I mean, the entire Old Testament was not written to the 21st century Gentile church. You know that, right? The entire Old Testament was written to the nation of Israel and the saints of old. But that doesn't mean we can't gain valuable information from the Old Testament. It doesn't mean we can't see a clearer picture of God from the Old Testament. So we can learn from the Old Testament, although it wasn't designed for us. And although these passages of Scripture today were not designed for the women, there is something to learn for the women. And although next time I'm here, the passage of Scripture will be designed for women doesn't mean it's not something men can learn from. And so let's begin by reading verses 1 and 2. But speak thou the things which become what? Sound doctrine. You know, have you noticed when I come up here, I lay on the table uh, really three things usually. One is my Bible. Two are my notes, which are actually pretty sparse. This is basically my notes right here, a half page. And my phone. And my phone is for time. I don't use my phone for anything other than to make sure that I am uh, staying within the time that I believe is most beneficial to this church. And so why is it I'm not bringing a bunch of other things up here? Because you didn't come up here. You didn't come here to hear a bunch of other things. Why is it that I not bring a a bunch of books that I'm going to be opening and reading from passages and closing the Bible and turning to a a book? Because when I've got the Bible to preach from, why would I waste your time with anything else? I mean, if you want to read a book, you can read a book. By the way, if you want to read a Bible, you should read the Bible. But if we're going to dedicate some time to focus on Christ, I would much rather hear what God has to say about himself than what other people have to say about God. And you say, well, Pastor Russ, aren't we basically doing that here? We're having what here to hear what you have to say about God? Well, yes, that would be the case if I wasn't using this book. <laughs> then yes, you would be here to hear what I have to say about God. But when I am coming to this book and speaking from this book and offering you this book, hopefully we can be on the same page that what you're hearing is not my opinion, but the Word of God, sound doctrine. There's a dangerous movement, and it is not, not new. This movement has been around for some time. It is a dangerous movement within the religions of man that we want to know of a God, but we want, don't want to know the God. <laughs> 
And when we hear about the God, we want to know about the God as filtered through what we feel, not what the God claims about himself. That's a dangerous movement. It creates a variety of religions and a variety of denominations within Christianity. If you're wondering, why are there so many religions? Well, there are so many religions because there are too many people who don't want to know about the God's sound doctrine from his book. So they create their own books and their own religion and claim they have discovered God. That's how you end up with different religions. Some of those gods they've created are nothing more than just humanity, and they claim they themselves are God. <laughs> That's a dangerous thing. Anything aside from God is idolatry and dangerous. But how foolish to think that we can be God. You say, well, Pastor Russ, what about denominations? Why are there so many denominations? There's a variety of reasons. Some denominations, they, they teach and preach sound doctrine, but their philosophy is different, and the, 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 the culture of the church is de- created more so by the, the philosophy than the doctrine. If you are using the same Bible, preaching the same God, and have faith in the same God, you will still have two churches that will look completely different, even though they preach and teach the same God and the same salvation. What is different about them is their philosophy. And a lot of denominations are so strong in their belief of what philosophy should look like, they literally create their own denomination because they believe that church leadership should look a certain way or, or worship should look a certain way. Or they don't want to attach to any denomination because their philosophy looks like no one else's, so they call themselves non-denominational. It is usually the philosophy that, that, that separates denominations. Theology separates religions. Not the same thing. But there is something else that separates denominations than just philosophy, and it just comes down to our pride. We're too prideful to unite with people who might look different than us, think different than us, act different than us. Even if we have the same philosophy on the important things, minor things are such a big deal to us because of our pride. We want to start a new church somewhere else five minutes, ten minutes down the road just because you're different and I can't stand being in your presence. And therefore, we have another church and another denomination. What a sad testament to God's church where he calls us to unite. Under what? <laughs> one God, one faith, one baptism. Essentially, unite under the doctrine of God's word. We are not called to unite under philosophy. We're not called to unite under feelings. Or we're not called to unite under ethnicity or age or gender. These things do not unite us. They're not called to unite us. And Christians who elevate these things to a level of importance are missing the big deal, and that is Christ. Salvation, where you're going when you die. What a shame that we would separate under minor issues and lose sight of the big issues. Sound doctrine. That is what God has called our churches to elevate. Number two, verse two, excuse me, that the aged men may be sober. You like that term, aged men? Not sure how I feel about that term, and I'll I'll tell you why. Because if you go down a little further, verse six, we find young men. You know what? There's nothing in between. We are either aged men or young men. There is no middle-aged men. What happened with that? I mean, our culture has created the, you know, the mature man, the middle-aged man. God doesn't seem to agree. God says you're either old or you're young, all right? You figure out which one. I mean, the problem is I'm young to some of you. I'm the young man. To others, I'm the aged man. To others of you in this room. So which one am I? Which one are you? You know, I think it comes down to more of what you think and where you feel you are at probably than what other people see that you're at. 
An aged man and a young man. What does that mean? I don't know that it has so much to do with age, although age obviously is part of it, aged and young. But, you know, what age does someone go from young to aged? As far as God's concerned, you know what's really gracious about God? I love this. He doesn't give us an age. He doesn't say you become aged at whatever fill in the blank. God says, I'm going to leave that one, you know, a little ambiguous. I'll let you figure that out. When, when the young become the aged. You ever met a young man with an old soul? The guy's in his 20s and he acts like he's 50? You ever met a 60-year-old who thinks he's a teenager? All right, so age isn't always the only factor that, tra- that determines whether you are a young man or aged mo- uh, man. And women, it doesn't get much better. You're going to see it's the same phrases for you in the verses 3 through 5. It's young women. I know. I'm sorry. I didn't write the Bible. It's young women and aged women. We don't like to think of aged as uh, an adjective of, of describing who we are, but it's not a bad thing. Aged means you've taken the next step from youth and immaturity to maturity, to an age that can be respected and honored and and trusted. We think of aged men and women as uh, those who are dying tomorrow. I mean, I don't know what your definition of aged is. I can guarantee you it's not God's. God's definition of aged is obviously this. If you're not young, then you're aged. And you know what? I think I'm in the aged category then, because I'm pretty sure I'm not young anymore. You may disagree, but I guess that's how I'm going to, that's where I'm going to land there. So God has some challenges for those men in this room, myself included, who are not young men. You know what else God does not give a time to or, or a definition to, and that's teenagers. It, there's only one other category that I find in scripture, not here, not in this passage, it's another passage, and that is children. So you've got children, young men, and aged men, children, Young women and aged women. That's it. You are either a child or a young man. If you've gone past that, you're into the age category. Welcome to the club. But those that are not in my category, you are a child or you are a young man. Parents, you are doing your children a disservice by putting them in this limbo stage of teenager that does not require them to choose one or the other. And I'll tell you why. You are making, you are allowing them to believe that they deserve all of the honor of a young man and none of the responsibilities. They have the responsibilities of a child. You make their bed for them. You make their sandwiches for them. I have a high school student that tells me they don't have lunch, and I say, well, whose fault is that? They say, my mom's. I say, wrong. You're high school. You, it is your fault you do not have lunch. If there is food in the house, you are the only one to blame, high school student, Why are you wearing the same clothes you did yesterday? I can smell them from across the hallway. Well, my mom, nope, wrong. Is there a washing machine in your house? Yes. A dryer? Yes. Is there laundry detergent? I don't know what that is. Well, that's your problem. You don't know what soap is in your high school. But parents and grandparents, you're part of the problem. You are allowing them to reside in what the world has defined as the middle stage. They're not a child, but they're not an adult, so they have the freedom to do whatever they want, when they want, but you got to treat them with respect as an adult. No, respect is earned by choices they make, responsibilities they have, and the character they displayed. That is when they are given the respect of a young man and a young woman. If they are 
taking the responsibilities of a child, you give them respect a child is due. If they are taking the chores of a child, you honor them on the level of a child. If they want to be a child, explain to them what that is and show them what that is. Because as far as God's concerned, teenagers do not exist. It's children, young and aged. Now, today, Titus does not deal with children. The book of Ephesians does. We find other passages of Scripture that address children. But looking in this room, I don't see children, and I don't see teenagers. I see young men, I see young women, and I see the rest of us, the aged. (laughs) So this morning, if you are a teenager, as the world defines, I challenge you to rethink who you are and to recognize this passage is talking to you, young men and young women, next time we're together. Let's go to verse 6. Young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part, that is means those who are against God, those against truth, those against Scripture, those who are contrary, contradicting the Christian faith, may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Now, how interesting is that? Who is it that has the potential to bring shame to unbelievers? In this passage, it's the young, not the aged. Why could that be? Because the world, when they see the aged acting their age, they say, well, that's just how you should be. That's what we expect of you. When the world sees the aged Christian living a life of maturity and spiritual faith, you don't bring shame to them because that's status quo. You know what amazes the world? You know what brings shame to the world? When they see young men and young women acting out their faith strongly. If you do a research, a a historical research on revivals, you will find most Christian revivals began with young men and young women. And the the aged of us just rode the wave. We went along with the ride. It was the young that brought shame to the world. It was the young that that brought the eyes opened and the hearts opened. And they said, wow, if a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old and a 24-year-old can live their life for God like that, why can't I? They bring shame to the aged. They bring shame to the young. They bring shame to the unbelievers. It's the young. And yet, you know what happens in Christian churches? It is the aged who shame the young out of that position. Look, I'm not here telling you let's enable the young to live their lives free. I just said otherwise. I said if they're going to live like a child with the responsibilities of a child, then treat them like a child. You treat young men and young women like young men and young women because of how they live their lives. But once they have entered into that category, let us recognize the value and the power the excitement and the energy that they bring to God's church. And it is almost always the young that God uses to shame the world and help them recognize they're not taking the right path. I've got only two points this morning. 
in the message a charge to Christian men, and that is, I, I did change it. Forgive me. I went from age to mature. I thought, well, I'm going to call it mature just because I want to. You know, these titles are not inspired word, all right? So I can create my titles, but it's aged men and young men, although I change it to mature men. Mature men and young men. Let's go to number one, mature men. We've seen verses one and two. Men who are aged, mature, are to be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and in patience. Whoa, what a list for aged, mature men. In fact, if you look at that list, you'll find it is very similar to the list in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we are given the list of what we are expected to see in both deacons and spiritual leaders, pastors, bishops. You see, a pastor is not really much different than an, an, a mature Christian. Essentially, Timothy and Titus and the church was just called to choose their pastors from the group of mature men in their church. It wasn't like the pastor was the only guy who evidenced these qualities. All the aged men should be evidencing these same qualities. The pastor is one of many who have these qualities, not the only one. The pastor's wife is one of many who have the qualities of an aged, mature woman, not the only woman in the church who has those qualities. You show me a church where the pastor and his wife are the only mature ones in the church, and I'll show you a lot of heartache. I'll show you a church is not healthy. That is not where they need to be. You show me a church who chooses among the immature and places them in spiritual leadership, I'll show you a church that is causing a lot of pain to themselves, self-destruction. The church should be full of aged, mature men. All of us displaying the faith, the patience, the love that you would expect to find in a Christian who's been around for a while. We're not new to the game. We didn't just arrive on scene wondering what's going on around us. We've been around for a while. Why are we still walking around blindly feeling our way through life? You've had enough experience to show you this works and this doesn't. But let's throw the experience out. You have had enough time to see the truth and know what the truth says and follow it. God's giving you the opportunity, men. Why is it we still fail? We still fail because we are prideful. Oh, we love, but we love ourselves. We are selfish. We have no humility. Our wisdom lacks because we do not have even the basic amount of wisdom to ask for more wisdom. And like the students who dread going to school because they, they of all the learning that is required, we have aged, mature men who still dread learning truth. At this age, we should no longer be running from instruction. We should no longer be running from truth. We should be running to it because our experiences have shown us what happens when we run from it. But like a child, we don't want to go to school. Like a child, we don't want to hear the teacher, the Holy Spirit. Like a child, we want to live our life free and hope for the best. But like a child, we want to be treated like an adult, aged men. Mature men, God has some expectations for us. They are pretty profound. Letter A, spiritual growth is a product of biblical truth, not Christian philosophy. Kind of already dealt with that in our introduction, right? Verse 1, speak thou the things which make you feel good, which make people happy. 
Speak the things which cause them to say amen with hands raised because they're already doing it. But don't ever talk about the things they're not doing. Speak thou the things only that your denomination or religion allows you to speak of. Speak thou only of the things that have already been spoken of by some other human. But don't ever dare open the word of God and speak sound doctrine. No, speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. That is what drives our growth. A church who does not preach sound doctrine may very likely be a loving church. I'm not going to deny that. Lots of love, lots of compassion, lots of care, lots of service. They could have those things. You know what they will not have? Growth. I don't mean in numbers. I mean individually, in their marriages, in their families, in their lives. They will not grow because we grow from application of truth, not philosophy. Philosophy is an opinion on how to apply truth. Truth is the truth. Philosophy changes. Your opinion on what to do with the truth will change as you become aged. But the truth itself will not change. The philosophy will change as you go from one culture to another culture, either within a country or from country to country. The philosophy of how to apply the truth will change based off of who you're dealing with, who you are, what you've been through, and what you have not been through. That will all affect your philosophy. But what will never change is truth, because Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and Christ never changes. We grow from the truth. And if you want your children to grow... To young men and women, give them truth and help them apply the truth. If you want to be an aged man, not in age, but in maturity, a mature man, then grow in truth. Letter B. Men of God serve the kingdom of God. So here we go, the first truth. Aged men, be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and patience. All of these qualities are for the benefit of God's kingdom. All these qualities God uses in our lives to serve others. Grave. What does grave mean? It has the idea of a serious understanding to which we've been called. You know who's not grave? The party animal among us. Everything's a joke. Everything's a party. Everything's a game. They literally want to make jokes at a funeral. They want to make fun of the bride as she walks down the aisle. They want to make fun of your parents when you introduce them to them for the first time. Like, everything is a joke to them. They're not grave. Grave doesn't mean always serious, never having fun. Grave means you understand the seriousness to which you've been called. The seriousness of it. We've been called to a serious, a serious life of eternal life or death. And the people in our life will go to heaven or they will go to hell. That is a serious thing. And if anyone ought to understand that, it is the aged men who've seen our friends die. And we wonder if some of them were even saved. And we consider our dead friends and ask ourselves that they're in hell today, screaming in terror. We're old enough to have lost people that we love. Death is a reality to us aged men. And that brings a seriousness to the time we have left on this earth. The young man thinks they'll live forever. The young man does not consider death. Even at funerals, they do not consider death because it's not them. The aged man knows otherwise. Sober, grave, 
Sober has the idea of not controlled by something else, specifically alcohol, a drunk, but even anything. Sober, you're not controlled by your own emotional chaos. You're not controlled by your own feelings, by your own desires. You're not controlled by addictions. You are sober. You are in control, specifically of the Holy Spirit. If you are an aged man, you are called to serve God's kingdom. Temperate has the idea of balanced, sound in faith. You know what you believe. You know who you serve. Charity, you do it with love. Patience, you are consistent and you will not give up. A child crying brings to your own heart compassion. A teenager crying makes you wonder what pain they're suffering that they would be in tears. A young man crying, even, you might say, wow, you know, that must be a lot of pain. You know what is odd to us? I'm not saying crying is wrong. I'm saying that there are a lot of things children, teenagers, and young people sometimes, but more likely children and teenagers, cry over, which is not necessarily needful to cry over. You'll hug them. You'll say, it's all right. Let's get through this. But the crying wasn't necessary. But they're children. They're young. When aged men cry over everything, that just causes most of us to be disturbed. I'm not saying aged men crying over a lost friend that passed away, over trauma that affected them severely. I'm talking about aged men crying over things that should not be causing tears. Aged men whining about things that they just need to get through, man up, and accomplish. You don't expect aged men to act and cry like children. We are to endure. You expect aged, mature men to be strong and to endure. And that word patience, that's what it means. You stick it out and you endure. You don't stop and cry. If crying is necessary to, to deal with the emotions of pain and sorrow, you're, you're, you're suffering, great. Do that. Get that done and move through. But let's not cry about things of which tears will not help or it's not necessary. And let's not stop and cry. We're men. We move. And we move forward. Patiently enduring. Why? Because as King David stated, is there not a cause? Why? Because mature men, spiritual growth, men of God, serve God's kingdom. We recognize there is something more important in this life than our life. And we're going to live it for the more important. Let us see. Mature men ought to display a mature faith. How is it possible that you've been going to church for 30 years and a child asks questions of which you cannot answer? An eight-year-old has questions about God's word you cannot answer. Is this the first time you've heard these questions? Have you thought so little on truth that you have not dug deep enough to discover the questions for yourself that an eight-year-old has to ask you questions you've never asked yourself? 
How is it possible that a 13-year-old ponders the, the depth of humanity and the depth of the human condition, and you have chosen to not ponder that at 30, at 40, at 50? How is that possible? That you have floated through your Christian faith without ever actually diving. You just float on your back, enjoying the vacation. The kids, the young bringing the world shame as this generation of young men and women. I see it. They're asking tough questions. The young men and women of this generation, they want to go deep. If they're going to get in the water, they want to know what's in the water. They want to know what's lurking below. They don't want to just float on their backs without asking questions. They have questions and they need the answers to those questions. And the aged men and the aged women among us just say, we'll have faith. Everything will work out okay. Don't question God. And yet God gives so many answers, it's okay to question God, especially when God gave us the answers to the questions. And God expects the men, the mature men and women in this room, to have the answers. The Apostle Paul gives instruction, and he states, study to show yourself approved, so you will not be what? Ashamed. Because it should shame you, mature men and women, to not have the answers that are easily discovered when asked by a child, a young man, a young woman. Aged men, we need to have the answers when God gives them to us. It is time that we stopped floating on our backs through our faith and dug deep and coming to this church for an hour and a half a week is not digging deep. Hearing me preach truth to you for an hour and a half a week is not digging deep. It is time for you to take the book that is available full of sound doctrine and to start diving deeper. You know what the Apostle Paul condemns one of the local churches in the first century for, he says, you guys are still drinking meat when you sh- are drinking milk when you should be eating meat. He says, you keep talking about the same shallow things over and over again. Now, let me explain what he says. Basically, his definition of that was salvation. It's not that salvation is bad or harmful or you shouldn't know it. He's saying that's like the basic thing that every Christian should know, salvation. And if after 30 years of being saved, the only thing you can talk about is salvation, nothing else, you're still drinking milk. Because even a new believer understands salvation, they just got saved. The 30-year-plus believer ought to know more about the Bible than just salvation. They ought to be eating and consuming spiritually harder foods than just milk. The Apostle Paul condemns the church by saying, all you talk about is salvation. You never get deeper than that. There are churches every Sunday morning, the only thing the pastor will preach is salvation every time. And then that pastor is shocked when the people aren't growing stronger. All he's doing is feeding the milk. Salvation is the milk. That's the basic. Why is it so simple? Why is it determined as, defined as milk? Because God wants everyone to be saved, even the young. And if it was meat, the young couldn't be saved. It would be too hard for them to understand. God made salvation simple. He made it easy. He made it accessible, lower shelf, bottom shelf, so all could be saved. Even children could be saved. But God did not intend for us to never get to the next shelf of truth above and beyond salvation. Aged men... To your shame, 
some of you can't even swallow the milk. To our shame, aged men in this room, you could not lead someone to the Lord with milk. You don't even know salvation well enough to communicate it to someone else. To your shame. And the young men and women know more about God's truth, God's word, God's doctrine than some of the aged men who barely know anything at all. To our shame. Teach sound doctrine, not just salvation, but so many of the other truths of the scripture so that men who are in the word of God and under the teaching of God's word can know much, can get deeper and offer that help to the next generation. And now, young men. Verse 6. Young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded in all things showing a pattern of good works. Now, that's interesting. The aged men weren't necessarily encouraged to show a pattern of good works. It was more focused on character and spiritual maturity. It's not that men aged shouldn't have good works. I think it's assumed that by this age of maturity, good works are a given. <laughs> you shouldn't have to ask, do you have a good testimony? Aged men, it should be part of who we are. The young men need to be reminded of what a good testimony is and to embrace it strongly. Why? Because there is a battle going on. It is a battle for the mind. And you lose that battle, you lose everything. The world knows for which they are fighting. We Christians have forgotten. The world is fighting for the mind of your youth. The world is battling you parents for the mind of your children. And if you do not know you're in a fight for the mind of your child, the world will most definitely win almost every time. You're in a fight, Christian parent, for the mind of your child. Which is why... Titus is encouraged when dealing with young men to first address what? The mind. What do we see in verse 6? Titus, exhort to be sober-minded. Why? Well, if you see verse 7 showing a pattern of good works, because the good works, truly good works, must be paired with a mind that is founded soundly on truth. Because good works that are just a show of obedience, forced obedience, where the mind does not agree with the works, do not last. A child who does good works purely out of fear, out of obedience, forced obedience, when they become a young man, will probably cease the good works. Because now that they are young men, they will do what they believe is right, what they want to do, not what you tell them. You want someone to have a pattern of good works throughout their entire life? It starts here, not here. It starts with the mind. What are you teaching them? What are you explaining to them? A sound mind will result in sound works almost every time. Letter A, young men can be trained to obey, but they must also be trained to think. Train the next generation to think. And you're not training them to think when they ask a question, you say, just trust. That's not training them to think. That's training them to not think. 
You're not training them to think when they ask a question. You say, well, son, I don't know there's an answer. They say, well, actually, here's the answer. You're like, oh, yeah, there's the answer. You're training them that you don't think is what you're training them. They found the answer outside of you because you don't think, men. You're not training them to think when you just say, trust God. That is true. There are times to trust God. But you, there are times where God has given us an answer, and we need to, when, it said, when the phrase trust God should be actually saying, trust what God says. Not just trust God ambiguously, trust what God says. So tell them what God says so they can trust God. Young men can be trained to obey. Children most definitely can be trained to obey. My question to you is this. Will they still obey God when they're 25? Now, every person has their own free will. Every person decides for themselves what they will do with their life. You give your child, you give the next generation of young men and young women the best chance of success when you fight for the battle of their mind. Not just their actions. The fight is not on what they do every day. The fight is on how they think. There's the fight. Letter B. Good works are not a benefit for the servant, but rather for the ones they are serving. Young men, showing a pattern of good works, uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech, these things, all, all good testimony, good works, service to God's kingdom. For what? That he that is of contrary part, the unbelievers, those who fight against God's word, would be ashamed. You need to instill in the young men and women in your life humility. You're not training them and teaching them and helping them with their mind and their actions so that they will only find success. That is part of it. Every good parent wants their child to be successful. Every adult should want a child, any child, all children to be successful. We should all want that. But if that's all we focus on, you are, you are training the next generation to be inward thinking, all about you. They become selfish, spoiled brats. And guess what the world is full of today? Selfish, spoiled brats. Because the world trains children to live for themselves. The world tells young men and women to fight for themselves. And God tells us to fight for others. We're not here to serve ourselves. We're here to serve others. First, God's kingdom. Secondly, the community to bring them into God's kingdom. Bring them shame in the hopes that in their shame they will see they are wrong and want the truth that you are living, young men. If you say you are not in my category, hey, more power to you. Glad for that. Don't need you to be in my category. We need young men who bring shame to those living in lies. Shame to those who are living in deception. We need, our church needs those young men. But you will not bring shame to them when you are living in shame. When you're bringing shame to your own head, your own house, your own life, by your bad choices, by not having a sound mind but a worldly mind, by not having uh, a sound speech that speaks truth but by speaking lies, by not having the, the character that we see here in Titus chapter 6, 7, and 8, but instead the character of the world, you are bringing shame to yourself, and you will not shame them when you bring shame to yourself. You will not shame them when you bring shame to your church. You will not shame them when you bring shame to your family, and worst of all, shame to your God. Young men. 
when you feed the flesh the things you want, whether it be sexually, whether it be your own desires when it comes to what you consume, the things you watch, the places you go, when you are feeding your own flesh, you are bringing shame, but not to them, to yourself and those who rely on you. You're bringing shame to them. Young men of the church are not called to bring shame to the church. They're called to bring shame to the world who's living a lie. Starts with the mind. Continues to our outward actions. Recognizing in humility, young men and women, we are not here for ourselves. We are here for God, his kingdom, and to see the world come to God. Letter C, and we're done. It's not enough that we believe deeply. We must also speak sincerely. Verse 8, along with the other things we should show, uncorruptness, meaning uh, righteousness, not living a life of immoral unrighteousness. Gravity, there's that word gravity again, the understanding, the seriousness to which we've been called young men, but sincerity and sound speech. Living the life is important. Speaking the truth is important as well. Young men, get over yourself. Young men, stop living in silence. The world has a phrase, silence is violence. They would apply it differently than I would. But there is some truth to that. When you know the truth and remain silent, you are allowing others to live in their own self-destruction of violence. Stop living in silence, young men. And recognize you have the answer to all the problems. All the big problems of this world, you've got the answer. You're the professional. You know the truth. Why would you not speak the truth? You're afraid of what they would say. Be more afraid of where they go. And at this point, I'm not even talking about hell, which is where they will go if they die in their sins. I'm talking about where they will go in the next 20 years with their life. Be afraid of that. Do not become an aged man with regrets because you did not speak sincerely the truth that you've known all along. Know the truth. Live the truth. Speak the truth. The world in shame will wonder what you've got that they do not. Aged men, it's not an insult. It's an honor. It's an honor for God to see you as no longer a young man. It is an honor for God to say, you're done with milk, let's get you to meat. It's an honor. But with that honor, God expects you would bring honor to him. Young men, you've been drinking milk. Most of your Christian life up to this point has been about salvation. Being saved and staying saved, something to which you've been bothered by Many years, am I saved? Am I saved? Am I now saved? Have I, did I lose my salvation? And over and over and over again, you just keep drinking the milk, wondering if it's good. It's time to move on and start working towards the meat. Young men, it's time to take that milk and offer it to others so they can also move on and get to the meat. A charge to Christian men, it's not a vacation. Stop floating through life. Let's get deep. And it's not enough to be here once a week. Get in God's word. Ask 
God the hard questions. Get the answers and then speak them sincerely to the other searchers in your life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your people. Thank you for the opportunity to be challenged this morning by some hard truths, some things we as men are missing in our lives. We've fallen short in some of these areas. I pray that you would give us the strength to get up, to be strong, to search for truth, and to live it. I pray that you would give us the humility to make life not about ourselves, but about others, and to speak sincerely the truth of God's word. In Jesus' name, amen.